Our scripture reading for this morning is John chapter 20, which recounts the resurrection. So if you could turn to John chapter 20, and you can follow along as I read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday and all that it means for us. We thank you that we do not have a dead religion with a dead Savior or God or Messiah. But you are alive, you hold the keys of death, you have conquered death, Lord Jesus, and you are a living Lord. And as a result, we have forgiveness, we have hope, we have new life in you, and we are grateful praise you and we thank you for your grace that is ours because of the cross and the empty tomb. Father, we thank you that we have hope this morning, that Easter is not just nice clothes and, and flowers and smiles on our faces, but it is for the valleys and the grief and the loss and the ache and the groaning that we have hope in the valley of tears and in the valley of the shadow of death. So Lord, where there is grief and sadness and despair and darkness, would you please shine the light of the living Christ and his hope, his living hope into our hearts this morning. That we would awaken to the implications and the meaning and the sweetness and the power of the resurrection. So Lord, as we now turn to your word, would you please meet with us and speak to us We are not here by accident. We pray that by your spirit you would come and accomplish all the good purposes you have for us being here today, considering your word. I need your help. Each of us needs your help. May we attend to what you have to say. Drive away the distractions and enable us to have ears to hear 
and soft hearts to receive what you want to say to us this morning, what you want to do in us and for us this morning. We ask all of this in the mighty living name of our Savior Jesus. All right, well, good morning. Happy Easter resurrection morning. He is risen. All right. It's like the best day of the year. So, hope that you are happy in Jesus. And if not, that because of being here this morning, you'll be happy in Jesus. All right, so, Revel oh, John 20. I'm hoping my notes don't blow down there. Um, already had my pages turned, that's why I stopped for a second there. Um, so, <clears throat> resurrection morning here. Maybe I'm gonna start in kind of an odd place, but I think you'll see why soon enough. Sigmund Freud, uh, famous Austrian neurologist, uh, believed that Christianity was a grand scheme of childish wish fulfillment. Okay, let me quote him. Religion is the process of unconscious wish fulfillment, where for certain people, if the process did not take place, it would put them in danger of coming to mental harm, being unable to cope with the idea of a godless, purposeless life. It is an attempt to get control over the sensory world in which we are placed by means of the wish world, which we've develop, developed inside us as a result of biological and psychological necessities. He said also, religion is a system of wishful illusions together with a disavowal of reality such as we find nowhere else but in the state of blissful hallucinatory confusion. So is that true? Is Christianity just wish fulfillment? I really, really, really want this to be true. It has to be true. I need this to be true. It must be true. And nobody can tell me otherwise. You know, la, 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 la. Like, don't tell me anything else. It's got to be true. If it's just wish fulfillment, though, isn't it just like a spiritual placebo pill for spiritual hypochondriacs? I mean, do sugar pills really do you any good? No. But hey, I mean, people feel like they do. So go ahead and pop those pills. And, you know, if, if you're into religion, go for it. It makes you feel better. But is that really something to bank your life and future on? So, three points this morning. Okay, there's, if you pulled up the notes, you've got them. It's pretty simple. You can probably keep it in your head. If it's true, is the first point. It changes everything. It's the second point. Do you believe this? Is the third point, which is quoting Jesus from another part of the Gospel of John. So first point, if it's true. Is it true? Is the resurrection true? Did it really happen? Is it intellectually credible? Okay? This really is the first question, isn't it? I mean, oftentimes people push back on Christian morality or exclusivity, you know, this doctrine or that doctrine. I don't like the Christian sexual ethic. It's repressive. Or I don't like the idea that there's a hell and Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why bother with any of what the Bible teaches? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, what you like 
or don't like about Christianity is really beside the point. The question is, is it true? So, a few pointers to the trustworthiness of these claims that the Bible makes. Well, the tomb really was empty. Okay, if it wasn't, the body could have easily been brought forward to squash the lies and the rumors. If you read, like, first century authors, like, nobody ever had to defend the emptiness of the tomb. So, some pointers here. First, women witnesses. Who are the first witnesses to the resurrection in the gospel accounts? Women. We don't think twice about that. But in the first century, this would have been really surprising. Okay? Women had, sadly, lower social status in the first century. Their testimony was actually not admissible evidence in court. So if this whole resurrection thing was created by Jesus' disciples, you know, decades or maybe even a century later, writing it this way would have undermined the credibility of their claims. So you can imagine that there could have even been pressure to change the narrative, to leave out those details, unless they're just reporting the way it happened. Second, no one expected this. I think this is, again, one that we probably tend to miss because we think too much from our mindset now of kind of knowing the whole story. Most of us have, have some, tend to have some chronological snobbery, hiding, lurking in our hearts. Okay? Oh, those first century people were probably pretty gullible. And they didn't have much scientific sophistication. They're probably suckers for all kinds of things that could easily be explained today. Well, certainly they didn't have the same kind of scientific knowledge we have today, but they weren't gullible fools. That view is actually ignorant. It's foolish. So did Joseph start singing, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas when Mary told him he, she was pregnant? No, he would have assumed she was unfaithful. He didn't have a category for miraculous births like this. He was going to divorce her quietly. Same thing with the disciples making up a story of the resurrection. It's crazy if you understand the first century context. These were Orthodox Jews that knew the Torah. They were fierce monotheists who had no categories for the Messiah being God in the flesh. Jesus' death on the cross seemed like defeat to them. All their hopes were dashed. They did not anticipate a resurrection. Look at John 20 again. Remember Mary's first line of reasoning. Somebody must have stolen the body. That's what she's thinking. That's the common view. In, in the mind of a first century Jew, resurrection happens at the end of time when everything gets made new. I mean, some of them didn't even believe in the resurrection, but those who did believe that there was no such thing as an individual rising from the dead ahead of the general resurrection. It was a package deal, everybody at once. Or think about Thomas at the end of this chapter. Skepticism was his default. Okay, you see it there, verse 24. So he's told that they've seen the Lord, the other apostles. And he said, unless I see 
his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger in his side where that spear went in, I'll never believe. That was his default. I'll believe it when I see it. And then Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. It's just the mercy of Jesus right there, not rebuke. He heard, he was there, he knew what Thomas was thinking, what he was saying. And he shows up and says, peace be with you. Here I am, Thomas, go ahead, go ahead. Feel my hands, feel my side. It's his mercy that he comes because he wants to just blow away that unbelief, that skepticism. He wants to bless this doubting Thomas to move him from skepticism to confident confession. And how does Thomas reply? I mean, if he would have said, my God, it would have just been kind of an exclamation of shock and awe. But he said, my Lord and my God, what has to happen for a first century Jew to say to a human being in the flesh, my God? Something crazy miraculous. And then, thirdly, so you have the women, witnesses, you have the default setting of skepticism. They didn't have categories for a resurrection. And then, third, the early church, almost all the apostles died for their faith. I mean, if they made this up, why would they die for something that they knew was a lie? I mean, James, the half-brother of Jesus, if, if you read the Gospels in, in Mark's Gospel, for instance, there's one point where Jesus' brothers come to get him because, you know, maybe we should put him in a padded room. This guy's making some crazy claims, you know, and he's get, it's a little embarrassing. So they really originally thought he was nuts. And then he writes the letter of James and calls his half-brother the Lord of glory. What happened in between those two points? So these, died, these men died not for a ruse, but for a cause. Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. So can you empirically prove the resurrection? Of course not. But historical confidence is based on evidence that's different from, say, proving the boiling point of H2O. Okay, you can do that in a lab somewhere. But as far as history is concerned, does anyone doubt that Julius Caesar and Mark Antony lived and died? No. Can you prove that they lived and died? Well, not like proving the boiling point is 212 Fahrenheit. H2O, but there is credible historical evidence that they lived and died. And the same is true of Jesus, his living and his dying and his rising again. The resurrection is intellectually credible. But the next question that we've got to ask is, so what? What's the meaning? What's the significance of the resurrection? Well, if it's true, it changes everything. So there's lots of ways that we could tease this out, right? It changes everything. You guys wake, tracking. So it has to do with everything. Glenn, I see you, you got that. Okay, great, thankful. Um, I'm just gonna focus on three categories. Justice, comfort and hope, we're gonna put those together. 
and joy. It changes everything. Here's three examples. So first, justice. We're all sadly well aware of the two horrific shootings that took place recently in the course of just a week. On March 16th, 16th, eight people were killed at three spas in the Atlanta area by a gun. On March 22nd, 10 people were killed inside a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. Neither of those murderers died, and both are now in custody awaiting trial. Can justice be served in either case? Let's say they had died. They were shot by the police responding. Can justice be served? So these guys are still alive. They're going to get sentenced, right? Can, can, you can give murderers multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole, but is justice really served? When they take eight or ten lives? Even if they get the death sentence, is justice really served? But don't we long for justice to be served? Will justice be served in the end? Is the Christian doctrine of divine judgment at the end of time just wish fulfillment? Is it just something we create because we need it to make sense of this senseless world? Why is it that those judicial sentiments are so strong? They rise up immediately when things like this happen, when wrongs are perpetrated. And the, like, the closer that situation is to you, the, more, the stronger they rise up, right? But come on. If nature's really red in tooth and claw, and we're just animals evolved from primordial soup, then why are we so shocked and outraged by such cruelty? We don't get outraged when cheetahs track down a baby gazelle and just gobble it up. Maybe atheists are the one with the groundless wishes. These judicial sentiments are the law and justice of God imprinted on our souls. Our longing for justice to be served is not playing make-believe. It's the clear implication of human beings made in God's image with dignity and honor. And when that dignity and honor is violated, the justice that we long for is a pointer to the greater reckoning that we will all face, certainly those two men will face, not just a human court, but a divine court. So the cross and the resurrection bear witness to the fact that God's justice will be served in this universe. We all deserve a cosmic reckoning. Our consciences bear witness to it regularly. And if we are going to have to stand before the judge of the universe on our own merits, based on our own merits, we are all going to be condemned. But Jesus died on the cross for sinners like me and you. And if we turn from our sin and trust in him as our Savior, our sins were paid for in full on the cross. Justice was satisfied and mercy was poured out. But if we reject Jesus, if we know that he's risen and he reigns, but we reject him, his cross work, well, he's patiently, mercifully waiting to set the world to rights. That mercy is being extended to all the nations, but he's not going to wait forever. 
and you and me, we don't have forever. So we may get away with things in this life, but no one is ultimately getting away with anything in this universe, God's universe. The risen Lord Jesus will one day return and separate the sheep from the goats and eternal judgment and justice will be served. Heaven or hell awaits. Either Jesus pays for your sin or you do. The resurrection changes everything. Justice, but also comfort and hope. So this past Wednesday night, my friend and friend of a number of you here, if you've been here for a while, Jeremiah Trusty passed away. It's still hard to believe, 38 years old, he died of COVID. So I met him right around the corner at that Starbucks over there, shortly after moving here in 2009, maybe it was, might have been winter 2010. He was working at Starbucks, we started meeting together. Eventually, we, we first two years, we were living in the ranch house, the house on the other side, and he lived with us for about a year in the basement. And he became like an adopted uncle to our kids. Came like a, a big brother and a friend to our kids as they've gotten older. And we all have been grieving deeply these last few days. But we do not grieve as those who have Jeremiah is a Christian, is a Christian. <laughs> He's alive in Christ. He's absent from the body right now, but he is at home with the Lord. Is that wish fulfillment? Is that some spiritual opium we drum up and take in order to comfort ourselves and numb the pain? What Karl Marx called the opium of the people. Religion is the opium of the people. You know, magic painkiller pill to take away the pain. Are we just animals that are too weak to handle death and suffering and cruelty and loss that we have to invent something, wish fulfillment, in order to make it through? Are we not evolved enough to kind of handle things because we're just too weak? Or does the truth of it all come to us on the wings of these wishes, on the wings of these longings? So you tell me, is death normal? and natural and just the way it is? Or is death an invader and an enemy? Flannery O'Connor once wrote in a letter to a friend, for me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death decay, destruction, are the suspension of these laws. Jesus' resurrection was not the suspension of natural law. It was the beginning of the restoration of nature and humanity in its renewed fullness. So I love this quote in Tim Keller's Reason for God. He said, Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. You never see him say something like, see that tree over there? Watch me make it burst into flames. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. 
The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. So Ben and I are reading the Jesus Storybook Bible at night, chapter a night. The other night I read the story of Jairus' daughter and I was crying. Is that just because I'm weak? It makes me feel better? Well, here, let me read it to you. A little girl and a poor frail lady. The story of Jairus' daughter from Luke 8. There was once a little girl who didn't get out of bed one morning, or the next, or the next. In fact, she didn't get out of bed for a whole month. She was very sick and no one knew how to make her better. Jairus was her daddy. Jairus was her daddy and he loved her. One day he was sitting by her bed, holding her hand, wishing there was something he could. I know. He jumped to his feet, put on his coat, kissed his daughter, ran down the steps, step, step, past the servants, out the house, through the gates, along the road, into the town, up the steps, step, steps, and into the temple. He fought his way through all the people until at last he found who he was looking for. Jesus, he said, falling at Jesus' feet. My daughter, he pleaded, please. But he didn't need to beg, because before he'd even finished speaking, Jesus reached out his hand and helped him up. I'll come at once, Jesus said. Jairus' eyes filled with tears. Jesus was coming. It would be all right. In those days, of course, they didn't have ambulances, so they had to go by foot. Jesus' helpers knew that he would heal the sick girl, but they must hurry. If Jesus didn't get there soon, it would be too late. But everyone was in the way, hustling and bustling, jostling and pressing, pushing and shoving, squishing and squashing. The disciples ran ahead, forcing back the crowd. Suddenly, Jesus stopped. His friends looked back. What was he doing? Who touched me? Jesus asked, because he felt power go out of him. Me, said a frail lady, looking down at the ground because she was ashamed. The poor lady had been sick for 12 years, and she had to get well. She knew if she only touched Jesus' coat, she would be healed. So she touched his coat, and instantly she was well. We don't have time, Jesus' friend said. But Jesus always had time. He reached out his hands and gently lifted her head. He looked into her eyes and smiled. You believed, he said, wiping a tear from her eye. And now you are well. Just then, Jairus' servant rushed up to Jairus. It's too late, he said breathlessly. Your daughter is dead. Jesus turned to Jairus. It's not too late. Trust me. At Jairus' house, everyone was crying. But Jesus said, I'm going to wake her up. Everyone laughed at him because they knew she was dead. Jesus walked into the little girl's room. And there, lying in the corner, in the shadows, was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she just had a good night's sleep, and leapt out of bed. Jesus threw open the shutters and sunlight flooded the dark room. Hungry? Jesus asked. She nodded. Jesus called to her family. Bring this little girl some breakfast. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. 
Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. So this world can and often does feel like a bad dream, like a nightmare at times. But think of the worst nightmare that you've had. It's so real, isn't it? Like, I mean, have you ever woke up like in a cold sweat or just, you know, your stomach's in knots and, and then you realize it was just a dream and all those sad things came untrue. Like that. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. The Bible says, weeping tarries from the night, but joy comes in the morning. The great morning is coming. In fact, this morning is a rehearsal resurrection morning. The first resurrection morning was the beginning of the new creation and hope began to rise. And every <laughs> resurrection morning, somebody want to grab this? I'll just hold this. Um, is a rehearsal for the great morning that's coming. So death is like sleep, resurrection like waking up, and just as Jer Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, just as Jesus raised Lazarus, he can and will raise us. Dostoevsky says this in the Brothers Karamazov, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, and will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the com comforting of all resentments, for all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. It's going to have to be something pretty great. But it's not a pipe dream. This is not naive optimism. This is not pathetic wish fulfillment. He's echoing Romans 8, 18. Paul wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Everything sad will come untrue when all things are made new. Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. second point the third point is very quick so a guy named Jerry Jeremy Marshall used to be the CEO of the United Kingdom's oldest private bank wrote about a year and a half ago in the spectator he wrote this Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who stood up for not for Jews under the Nazis shortly before he was executed for standing up in April 1945 he smuggled out of his cell this message only a suffering God can help us. Jesus knows what it is like to suffer, and he knows it firsthand. In my fight with cancer, this guy has got terminal cancer, he's dying, I find that immensely comforting. There's more, he also know what it's, knows what it's like to die. 
I recently attended a funeral where the officiant said mournfully, there is no answer to death, but I believe there is. And it brings me great hope. In the short time left for me in this world, I can think of nothing more important than sharing that hope with others. This yearning to find such hope is powerful. Eddie Izzard, okay, he's a flamboyant English comedian and actor. Um, Eddie Izzard, who tragically lost his mother to cancer when he was six, says, I know why I'm doing all this. Everything I do in life is trying to get her back. I think if I do enough things, maybe she'll come back. Izzard continued, I have a, a very strong sense that we are only on this planet for a short length of time. Religious people might think it goes on after death. My feeling is that if that is the case, it would be nice if just one person came back and let us know it was all fine. Of all the billions of people who have died, if just one of them could come through the clouds and say, it's me, Janine, it's brilliant, there's a really good spa, that would be great. And then back to Jeremy writing here. My heart goes out to him when I read those words, but I am convinced that someone, Jesus, did indeed come back. As I'm wheeled in for another operation, or when I face up to my imminent mortality, the words from Psalm 23 are on my lips. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Perhaps it's all just wishful thinking. It's a fair point to make. It's true that hope with no factual basis is nothing more than a delusion, yet I am convinced that the Christian story is real, and it brings me hope even in the depths of my despair. So, again, is it just wishful thinking? Mere wishful thinking won't help, but sometimes the truth comes to us on the wings of our longing. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, in the human heart. So the truth comes to us on the wings of our longings. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Justice, comfort and hope, and finally, joy. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, Creatures are not born, born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. God has set eternity in the human and Psalm 16:11 points to where our longings for joy are ultimately found. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus rose again as the beginning of the new creation. He is now making all things new. One heart and life at a time. And one day, he's going to return, and all things will be fully and finally made new. And we will know fullness of joy forever. So, do you believe this? Remember how John 20 ends. It's 
John's purpose for writing the way that he wrote. He says, Jesus did lots of other signs. I didn't include them in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, eternal life, in his name. So, back in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus, right? Before he raised him, he said to Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never ultimately die. Do you believe this?